In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In the course of taking tea one afternoon recently, the conversation happened to turn to the decline of the English murder. I refer, of course, to the essay of that name by George Orwell, which was first published in 1946 and then again posthumously in the volume Shooting an Elephant and Other English Essays in 1952. As you would expect of so famous an author of 1984, of course, he had a number of interesting points to make and opened by inviting us to think of a typical working Englishman of his day settling down after his Sunday lunch, presumably a roast at that time always, to enjoy his dependably scandalous and sensational copy of the now, but only recently, extinguished British tabloid called the News of the World. A slightly more tepid version, I have to say, of your National Enquirer. He then proceeded to identify what he called as our great period in murder as having been between roughly 1850 and 1925. During this time, there were certain recurring features, he noted, which have been given the greatest amount of pleasure thus to the British public. He pointed to such things as the prevalence in these circumstances of the polite middle classes, some perversity of motives or other affronts to respectability, and indeed various aspects of venality and the desire to grasp often rather small amounts of money, together with a considerable use of poison. Of such methods, at least, as ensured gradual emergence of the terrible deed. By contrast, he argued that more recent instances, such as happened during the Second World War, were he felt marked by a new, blunt and horrifyingly brutal casualness. He also highlighted the seeming anomaly whereby in a recent case at the time, a man found guilty was sentenced to death, whereas a woman was sentenced to life imprisonment. That offended the principle of equality. And it is to be noted by way of a comment there that this particular point about equality was very much to be seen as one of the virtues during the French Revolution of the guillotine, in that it was used with manifestly equal success on both men and women, and also for all classes without discrimination from the king himself and his unfortunate wife Marie Antoinette on down, thus ensuring a definitive equality of opportunity, at least in death. But we must not be distracted by the French Revolution, tempting as it always is, as a rich source of moral insight, uh, as many from the time of Edmund Burke onward have made clear. For the discussion over afternoon tea had by that point moved on to a different puzzle, Namely, why Orwell, with his penchant for what captures attention, never really seems to have discussed cannibalism. Though I should hasten to add, lest you think he missed something about the English middle classes, that I'm not aware of their having any particular tendency to that behind all those pre-war lace curtains. What gives the matter interest is that it can be so very revealing when we make heavy weather of what seems, before modern examination, all too clearly difficult going all the way back to Sophocles, Antigone, and Polynices, of course, the burial of the dead, and what one does with them is rather important. 
But if such recent academic writing is looked at, all that sounds rather difficult in our current academic environment. There was one paper I came upon recently written about what it called discreetly bodily practices by one Shirley Lindenbaum, which illustrates my point. Thinking about cannibalism was the title. It soon makes clear what is being argued in some quarters by stating that for many years, the history and analysis of cannibalism was written from within a European or Western tradition, little concerned with issues of power and representation. Renewed interest in the practice followed and the provocative suggestion that institutionalized cannibalism never existed because centuries of reports about it were not based on reliable eyewitness evidence. Where such approaches can ultimately lead is illustrated in a book from Australia entitled Convincing Ground by Bruce Pascoe, who writes of a fully documented instance of cannibalism after a tribal disagreement in the 19th century. That, this is his comment on the account, something else is going on in this ceremony. To call it cannibalism is the absence of true understanding and is extremely prejudicial. Anyone with anthropological awareness must read that report and know that the ceremonial use of the body and the obvious grief mean the incident is not an example of cannibalism. What the ceremony means has been lost, but it was really about higher significance. The fact the body was consumed in the process is something we should therefore set to one side. All of which prompted my recall of a paper written several decades ago now by the engaging title, and I think I've cited it once before, What is so wrong with killing people? where he asked in that case if killing another human being is morally wrong on at least some occasions, as it clearly is, he did agree with that point, what precisely makes it wrong on those occasions when it is wrong? Now, of course, there is the further question of what is so wrong with eating people, which is the one I went on to. Thus, one commentator argued that there have actually been few philosophers who defended cannibalism, found this obviously exciting, most partial defenses of this behavior have amounted to endorsing relativism. There is some tribal practice, that's to say, of which the consumption of human flesh is an integral part. One must thus respect this practice, despite its seeming dissimilarity to one's own. I don't know what group he was speaking of. It would be an ethnocentric mistake to say that the practice is wrong. This sort of argument is not, of course, a defense of cannibalism, he pointed out, so much as a defense of the rights of people to engage in practices crucial to their culture. Though he does allow that, it's obvious that murdering someone for the sole purpose of ingesting their flesh is morally reprehensible. This does not show that cannibalism is wrong, it merely reaffirms that murdering is. So you see there are refined distinctions all over the place. Thus, he goes on to ask, what then is indeed so wrong with cannibalism? In an era of rampant consequentialism, what should we say? It does become an interesting question. Well, we could say because of the harm done to the cannibalized. But what if they were already deceased? Hence that point about it not being murder. The distress caused to the relatives, that would be a possibility, and friends of the deceased. But what then in the case of someone who didn't have any friends or relatives. Um, what would happen then? Presumably it's not an absolute problem, and it obviously shows the value of making sure you keep up with your relatives and your friends. But might not all human beings have an interest in general in the pre prevention of cannibalism on the basis that a society that permits 
produces more unhappiness than happiness. So who would want to live in such a society? But now we see in sharp relief that such moral concerns are merely a matter of prevailing convention in this or that society, although there's a hint of willingness to accept evidential gathering. In other words, you could go out there and assess what people thought about it all, and that would have some sort of determinative value. But of course, if you engaged in enough PR and employed enough marketing tools, perhaps an annual festival of diverse food, it might all presumably change. So the question is, what would we make of then of a spot of cannibalism? Would it thus become fine? So what if we want to say cannibalism is wrong in itself by way of illustrating that there are such things? Well, now I think we're presumably thinking it's time to engage the vast forces and many volumes of Immanuel Kant. And I hear you muttering about the grand thing known as the categorical imperative, according to which one ought always to treat other human beings as ends, in this case it's a good thing, never merely as means. And in the case of cannibalism, surely one is merely treating another person as a means for the satisfaction of some desire, forgetting the dignity that is owed to each individual and that it violates the moral law if one eats them. But then again, if the person is dead already, is there a person there to have been instrumentalized, you might ask? Then again, there's the whole issue of respect. Respecting a person involves respecting the body of a person and not degrading it. The morally permissible ends, even after that person is no longer present, which is to say the ends are antecedent to the ends purposed by the deceased, and it's plausible to suppose at least the wishes of the deceased themselves to be respected is something we should do. But all of this seems to leave aside the intrinsic rightness or wrongness of the said cannibalism in this particular case that we're looking at. There are lots of other things you might find less obviously clear. And there would seem to be an implied possibility of legitimate cannibalism where it saves lives, for example, in the case of a crash and you're stuck in the wilds of a remote place. And that has certainly happened. And the case of those of shipwrecked. And the person cannibalized could reasonably have been thought, perhaps, to have been willing to agree had he known or she known the circumstances. All of which seems to suggest not a demonstration that cannibalism is acceptable, but rather that considered arguments cannot establish that it's absolutely and always unacceptable. Even though I think matters get rather more complicated and sophisticated than I've suggested with Immanuel Kant, I can readily exhibit here, even through this rapid traverse of some of the odder seeming difficulties of our current purely secular worldviews on what prima facie are clear moral matters, surely is that all of that is revealing about the overarching poverty of our understanding of the metaphysics, the, meta the philosophical, the political, and indeed moral universe, along with our place in it. At their narrowest, such reflections tend to show that mere utilitarianism and consequentialism, so widespread as they are in the public reasoning of our culture, are manifestly insufficient to ground even fairly basic moral perspectives. But even more to the point, at a time when we are so often assured that there are in such things as human rights, exceptionless moral norms, what account could be given of them that is not metaphysically obscure or indeed just downright missing? And of that, is the case, if that is the case, do they not face ultimate collapse into relativism and the potentially transient grounding of mere prevailing consensus in our, in our culture at the moment? 
and that would imply that what has been given today may be taken away tomorrow, which is typically not what people want to think about human rights. All of which sets the stage for our saying that as Christians, can we not offer something more? But we must be clear that here we face, nonetheless, large questions as to how we ground and articulate this grand intellectual architecture, which we discern as needful and historically have unquestionably felt to be part of what it is to participate in Christendom in that broad sense of a Christian universe. At a most basic level, we mostly do want to say that there is such a thing as a Christian ethic. But if so, how do we derive it and how can we articulate its basis in such a way as to allow others to accept it or indeed need or want to pay attention to it? After all, if revelation is a private matter a pri of a private source for moral insight, why should others to whom it has not been vouchsafed or who do not acknowledge the revelation in some privileged manner, why that is perhaps self-authenticating or whatever, why should they be expected to pay attention to it and indeed to us as Christians? Any more for that matter than those who claim some kind of intuited basis, let us say, for human rights can expect the same from those who have a different set of intuitions about what those rights comprise. All of which brings me to how very deep and different the Christian perspective and self-understanding has historically been. It provides us with a radically different starting point from which then to work down to the particulars of how our culture and societies should engage with specific moral challenges. And to this end, we might usefully consider two thinkers, Karl Barth, to whom I can certainly not do justice, and Oliver O'Donovan, at least in some degree. Barth was very much engaged about the business of conceptual description, taking classical themes of communal Christian language molded by the Bible, tradition, and constant usage in worship, in practice, instruction, and in controversy, and then restating it or redescribing those principles, recognizing that this communal language had an integrity of its own and was thus in an important and irreducible sense something that speaks very deeply to our human condition and indeed practical concerns, even though the radical nature of God's otherness to us leaves us with the problem framed in the famous words of Kierkegaard of God's infinite qualitative difference between human beings and God. What he was nonetheless attempting was a restating, a reusing, a reappropriation of language that we had as humans been accustomed to talk, but which now for a long time, perhaps 250 years or more, has been receding from natural familiarity, a process Charles Taylor has also done so much to set out. Which brings us to O'Donovan's focus on the practical expression of all this and his description of how political authority begins all the way back with the vocabulary used in the Bible to describe the reign of Yahweh over Israel. The Lord's reign is first an exercise of power that gives Israel victory or salvation. It is secondly the execution of judgment or justice within Israel 
It is thirdly the establishment of Israel's communal identity as a people existing over time, an identity at first expressed with the land and later with the possession of the law. And to this a fourth affirmation must be added, namely that the Lord's rule is acknowledged, though not established in the praise Israel offers as a worshipping community. And that leads to something or points to something very important in answer to the question O'Donovan himself asks, namely, shall we conclude then that within every political society there occurs implicitly an act of worship of divine rule? To which he concludes in the affirmative that yes, I think we may even venture as far as that. It is implicit in the order of reality that it is. What is thus asserted is that ultimately we do not create political authority, we acknowledge it, and thereby acknowledge our existence as a political and indeed moral community. And arguably, this is something we saw recently played out in ceremonial form in the act of coronation. But the establishment of Yahweh's rule through power, judgment, and establishment of communal identity is only the first part of the Old Testament perspective. For next, this rule must be mediated to the people, and the nature of that mediation will seem to change over time. Think of Moses. Think then of the prophets. And that means we are forever in this world engaged in a task of discernment within a Christian and then a Judeo-Christian, pre-Christian anthropology that cannot be reduced to an ultimately naive simplicity that merely meets in the end our earthly human desires rather than reflects a divine order. And while wildly premature at this point in the overall argument, those who see the germ here of an Anglican unease with universal claims to Christian primacy, as others might aspire to offer, would be right. And in the light of what has just been said, it can be understood that for us as Christians, the rule of God established in Israel's communal existence is brought to its completion in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is this perspective and reality which alone, therefore, can ultimately ground our political, but indeed also our moral theology as distinctively Christian. Yet it does so in ways that are nonetheless invitational and not exclusionary or improperly hegemonic in this present world, since the invitation is always to ask what a world perfected will be like. For Christians, the reality of Christ can be seen as unfolded in a fourfold pattern that coheres with the earlier account of political rule derived from Israel's history namely the advent of Christ to save, the passion of Christ in which the judgment of the world is given, the restoration of Christ which affirms Israel's new identity in its representative of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ, the coronation of the one who has triumphed over the powers that oppose God's rule, and through whom salvation is brought to us, and by whom a redeemed world is not only made possible, but actual. This means that secular and political power is now exercised under law that is ultimately that of God, 
as Richard Hooker could well tell us. Never, as it were, the ultimate source of justice and right. The responsible state is therefore minimally coercive and minimally representative. This is not a restraint imposed by the nature of political authority as such, which can thrive on excesses of traditional legitimation and on splendid displays of force. Rather, it is imposed by the limits conceded to a secular authority by Christ's kingdom within which alone it finds its proper place. And it is within this perspective that Christianity finds its unique voice. And in the words of the epistle, we have been buried with him by baptism unto death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too might we walk in newness of life. Amen.